Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Tanefsky, and today I spoke with Dr. Michael Plant, founder and director of the Happier Lives Institute. While studying for his PhD in moral philosophy at the University of Oxford, Michael realized that there was a pressing need for more research on the most cost-effective, evidence-based ways to improve global happiness. That led him to found the Happier Lives Institute. Drawing on the fields of philosophy, economics, and psychology, the Happier Lives Institute focuses on neglected global problems, such as mental health and pain, identifies key interventions, and then evaluates the best organizations to deliver those interventions. I really enjoyed learning about the Institute's work, and I hope you do too. Welcome to Charity Talks. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Plant, the founder of the Happier Lives Institute. Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to start, can you tell us about yourself, your background, and then discuss the realization that you had several years ago concerning how the effective altruism movement has neglected important research on happiness? By um, background and inclination, I'm a philosopher. And one philosophical idea I always found quite plausible was the utilitarian one, that what we ought to do is to maximize happiness. Uh, seemed pretty intuitive to me. I remember I was in, um, in the theology class, age 17, and it was the first lesson in ethics. I wanted to introduce this, and I thought, oh, yeah, that seems, that seems like there's really something there. And uh, that's kept my, my interest going ever since. And um, so kind of the, the two quite simple ideas, one is the sort of the effective altruist or the consequentialist idea that we should try and do the most good with our resources. And the second idea is that happiness matters, and we should focus directly on that. And we should use the research on, on happiness that exists. There's all this research where you survey people, and you say zero to 10, how happy are you? That sort of thing. And uh, scientifically valid, and we should make use of that to combine them. And so where I, I sort of interacted with uh, the effective altruist world was uh, when I started PhD in Oxford in 2015, and uh, I started meeting the effective altruist folk and finding out what they cared about and what they did. And they definitely got the doing more good part. But when they thought about doing good, they hadn't really focused on, on people's happiness. So there was this concern with helping the global poor and there was a focus on um, saving lives, on income, on these health metrics or quality adjusted life years, disability adjusted life years. I don't know how, uh, how nerdy your listeners are and they'll have heard of those, perhaps some of them. And uh, I thought, okay, this is is good but shouldn't we be focusing uh, clearly what we're interested in here is well-being ultimately and probably by well-being what we really mean is happiness there are some other things we could mean by well-being but happiness is going to be a pretty key component so you know why are we why are we looking at that and uh that was um uh the, the, the direction of research that uh that i got started on. yeah and it would seem difficult to actually measure well-being so i'm just wondering if you can tell us about the institute's research in this area and how exactly it can actually be measured yeah well so we're we're not we're not pioneering the idea of uh, uh of measuring well-being so it turns out to actually be pretty straightforward there are these different sorts of measures of happiness there are these um uh, measures of how happy you are with your life 
life satisfaction, so zero to 10. Um, overall, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? Sort of an evaluative measure. And then there are these measures of how happy you are during your life, sort of experiential measures. And um, you could ask someone about their emotional state. You could uh, uh, give them um, give them an app which pings them and asks them, how do you feel right now? And you add up those those individual um, individual moments of time. So what kind of, how happy are you with your life? How happy are you during your life? And um, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, people really often ask me, okay, how this, you can measure happiness. That's so, that's so weird. How could you, how could you possibly do that? But so, yeah, I, I spend quite a lot of time talking, uh, kind of, sort of addressing people's concerns about this. But so here, here's one thing that I often find myself saying is that uh, you can, we use numerical scales to rate stuff all the time. Like uh, how satisfied are you with your work? How hot is that person over there? Like what's your Uber rating? Like how good was that restaurant? So we use, you know, scales, you know, zero to five, zero to 10 scales all the time. They're just ratings of how good or bad stuff is. And then we can do this with our feelings. So, you know, how, um, how, how, like how good was your rest? How good was the restaurant? It was very good. It was quite good. It was okay. So we, we just use words and numbers interchangeably to convey how good or bad things are. And this is like just very, uh, very general and uh, just the same thing uh, with happiness scale. So you ask me if I, how I am and I say I had a great day or I had a lousy day. I could say I was a nine out of 10, I could say I was a six out of 10. These would basically be doing the same thing. We're just used to using, like the reason we're able to communicate because we use, um, we use language in a cooperative way to, um, to communicate how we feel. If I said, you know, I feel great, and in fact, I was, you know, bawling my eyes out and uh, looking looking pretty miserable, you wouldn't, you would think, okay, that's not, you're not using the words in a normal way. So yeah, we can we can talk to each other, we use words, say how we feel, talking about our feelings is really no different. So that's the sort of broad explanation. Uh, but if you want to get a bit more sort of scientific and think, well, how, how do you, you want to measure stuff how do you really know if you can measure it well the, the basic idea is you you think well if we were measuring happiness how would we know okay so you think think asking people how happy they are will tell you how happy they are okay and if your happiness scale works so you think well okay that's what we what we're going to notice is the people who's, who are higher on this happiness scale they're probably going to have higher incomes better health they're going to be in relationships they're going to be in jobs they're going to live away from pollution uh, they're going to be less likely to commit suicide, and these are all the sorts of things you find. So, so that leads you to think, in the end, that asking people how happy they are probably does, in fact, tell you how happy they are. Um, so it's sort of uh, deceptively simple. And of course, people can answer you know, the questions in slightly different ways. There's work ongoing to, to try and finesse these sorts of things, but like in broad terms, it seems like we're just you know, we, we do capture something important through these questionnaires, and that's why we find all of these interesting patterns and are able to. Uh, learn about what makes life go well. And I know there's been a lot more research in terms of happiness and well-being in the recent decades, and so our understanding of happiness has really changed. And I'm just thinking about, you know, the Easterland paradox and how we kind of misinterpreted GDP as a signal of happiness and such. And so what do you think are some of the biggest changes in the way that we understand happiness? Yeah, so, so firstly, you're, you're right to say that... Um, uh, this is something we've been doing recently and we've learned quite a bit. So, okay, so what we're doing is we're surveying people and asking them their feelings. And 
Uh, we've only really been doing this on a large scale. I say we. As a philosopher, I don't actually do any hard work. Other people, some people I talk to. Um, and um, yeah, so we, we like, you have these surveys and uh, you get kind of various different ways of surveying people. So you might follow the same people over time or you ask a random cross-section or you're doing an experiment. You have your control group, and your, your intervention group. So yeah, this stuff is only really going since the, the Second World War. And the, the arc of progress is that People start doing this. They're kind of they're wondering. Mm, we really trust stuff. So they do the kind of tests which I've already mentioned to see if you get correlations in the right direction. Like if you get the right sort of associations, and uh, and then we're sort of building up this picture of of the causes and uh, and correlates of subjective well-being. And uh, interest in this really starts to get going in um, I guess sort of the the seventies and eighties. So it's a it's, it's a pincer movement. So why people start to take happiness research more seriously. Um, and uh, by people in an important sense, I really mean economists uh, who, are, who are kind of the, the drivers of public policy. And so in one direction, there's the, uh, there's the sort of research which Daniel Kahneman has done, which looks at how people make predictable mistakes in, in, um, in their choices and how people don't do, seem to do things which are, uh, which, you know, if, if the economists are to believe are really rational. So that's on the kind of the micro end, it was individual choices. And on the macro end, there's this amazing thing called the, uh, the Eastland Paradox, which is named after Richard Eastland, 1974. He writes this paper, Economic Growth, Does It Improve the Human Lot? And I've got that exactly right. But anyway, he, he sort of, he starts to look at data from the, uh, the US General Social Survey. He finds that even though GDP has been going, Average, uh, average reported levels of well-being have not, and this is pretty surprising. And this is not what uh, economists uh, would tell you should happen. So it's sort of indicating that you know, people aren't quite as rational as we thought, and that maybe actually this, you know, this, this economic thing isn't all it's cooked up to be. So that starts to motivate people to to take more of an interest in in looking at um, research on well-being direct rather than. Just kind of relying on our intuitions and thinking that that you know, all we need to do is sit back and let economic growth take us to prosperity. Makes sense. And I know that one intervention that turns out to be surprisingly cost-effective in increasing well-being is psychotherapy. And so can you discuss your research findings in this area, particularly as compared to some other interventions, such as providing cash transfers to communities? Yeah, so... So this picture's building up and we're thinking, huh, you know, maybe maybe what we thought made us happy isn't the same thing as what really does. Maybe we're not quite getting this right. And um, um, and then so more research starts to happen. Uh, and uh, one thing which people sort of quote unquote know these days is the Scandinavian countries the happiest in the world. And so there are these uh, these world happiness rankings that come out every year, which is they're quite the sort of happiness they're really they're, they're actually measures of life satisfaction rather than how happy you are during your life but anyway it's the um it's scandinavian to do best so finland has 8.713 or something and that's the current winner it was denmark a couple of years ago and so now people know that okay the, the scandinavian countries are the happiest in the world and um and the reason i i mentioned this is because this the world happiness report has only been going for 10 years uh, that's kind of how, how new some of this stuff is. Um, 
And uh, yeah, but now it's something that's just sort of starting to get into the back of people's minds. We're you know we're current, we're concerned about the, the climate. We want to move beyond GDP to something else, maybe to GWB, general well-being rather than GDP. Okay, now now they're sort of there are people in sort of quiet corners of nerdy corners of policy making, thinking, okay, let's you know, let's try and do this. Um, so New Zealand have talked about a well-being budget. Some people have heard of that. Scotland, if you're mentioning it, Iceland have done things. Apparently, it's the, the kind of the, the small, more far-flung countries which want to take well-being more seriously. And of course, this project of thinking, okay, let's try and improve people's happiness by as much as possible. This is, you know, as old an idea as uh, as civilization. Um, but it's only it's only more recently that we started to have the methods through this surveying stuff. To do so, and um, kind of the will to take this more seriously, and to realise it might be different from just uh, economic prosperity. Okay, so the, um, uh, the the question you ask is, okay, well, what, what do we get in terms of differences? And so the research which my organisation is doing is, where um, we find ourselves weirdly enough at, at sort of the tip of the spear, where there's all this research which has been done. People are thinking about, okay, let's let's get well bit. Well, some people, you know, kind of. Uh, you know, like I say, in kind of quiet, quiet corners of civil service bureaucracy, uh, thinking let's get kind of well-being into government. And then um, uh, where our, our bit of the story is, is to say, well, look, we we actually don't know what the most cost-effective ways are to improve global wealth. Like no one's no one's actually done that research yet. Um, and um, we sort of we know because we we can see what the people in the effective altruist world are doing, and they're and they're they're, they're really trying. Find the most you know, find the ways to do the most good, but they haven't been thinking in terms of happiness. There's been um, organisations such as GiveWell will focus on income, on years of life saved, but not actually uh, on on people's well-being more directly. And that to me sounds like we're kind of missing missing the idea. Uh, you know, we can do a bit better than than these other things. But the question is, will it really make a difference? And so um, we thought we would investigate whether whether it would. And um, one big uh, bit of research we've done is comparing um, providing cash transfers to uh, people in very poor people in very poor countries, so as provided by organisations such as Give Directly, thousand dollar cash transfer could be more than a year's household income, to um, in similarly poor places and similarly poor people. Uh, treating depression or uh, with with group therapy uh, for those who have depression. People would sit around in a um, uh, in a group for a week. There'd be a, a not a sort of a semi-trained facilitator in bits of sub-Saharan Africa, say. Um, trained psychiatrists are hard to come by, but you might have um, kind of a health worker which has gone through some some kind of more more sort of rudimentary training, and then they they lead a group. And so that's the that's the therapy intervention. And um, if you're in the world of effective altruism and also international development, cash transfers are really well loved. You know, if you you uh, if you want to help someone, you could give them a goat, <laughs> or you could give them some cash, and then you can let them decide, and they can see what's important. And these so these have been quite well studied. You know, a couple of hundred randomized controlled trials. Um, people don't waste the money on you know on on booze and uh, and fags, they tend to invest this and make sensible decisions. So, so these are kind of now sort of the, the standard to be. 
like, okay, if you can't think of anything better to do, you might as well people can. And so we, and then um, treating depression uh, through therapy, any other way, is not really regarded as kind of a serious intervention. Uh, you know, it's like people just don't, it's not really on the agenda, either in international development or in effective altruism is a way of helping people. Um, okay, so what we did was we ran them, uh, we ran them head to head. We um, looked at the looked at the existing research in both cases. So we had about forty studies of each intervention, uh, and um, we aggregated the results together. And we had mostly we were using standardised measures of mental health, which may be a bit controversial, but we think is a pretty good measure for, for happiness in the end because people saying how they're feeling. So we we ran these kind of in a, a sort of a standardized way we ran them head to head and we looked at the effects over time and we looked at the cost to deliver different services and we did all this sophisticated statistical degree pokery and tried to count for uncertainty with various um uh, fancy bits of modeling but the sort of the end line result was that we found that the duh, we found that our treating depression was 10 times more cost effective than providing the cash so Mike, Mike, Mike drop. <laughs> uh, and when when um, uh, I tell people this, about seventy percent of people look at me like I'm mad and say, "Well, why? There's no way this is true." Like, obviously, the problem is poverty, so it's got to be the money. There's no way. And about twenty percent of people say, "Oh, yeah, that was obvious. Why did you need to do the research?" And uh, I think that shows why. Uh, why? It's yeah, it's interesting. It definitely. You know, I could see how people could be surprised, but it just shows why it is so important that we're getting these research results and getting us new information. And I know that another area of research that the Institute focuses on is applying its findings within the larger context of global priorities. And so can you explain how you go about doing this? Yeah, so the, um, the basic idea is quite simple. You want to try and do cost effectiveness in terms of people's happiness. We don't know what the priorities are. Let's have a look and, and see. Uh, so we're interested in looking at uh, other things. So uh, we've got some research doing comparing deworming, so treating intestinal worms for um, places like Sub-Saharan Africa, allows children to go to, it makes it easier for them to go to school and to earn more money in later life. Uh, so we've been looking at comparing that, looking at um, saving lives through anti-malarial bed nets. And um, uh, looking at eliminating lead paint and the effect that has um, or the effect that has on on children, and so we've we've got sort of some other things we, we want to look at, and we want to build out the jigsaw puzzle and see at the end how different uh, the well-being picture is from. I'm still not quite sure what to call it, the more like conventional intuitive picture. Uh, I mean, we've already found one case where it looks like differences are quite big compared to what we would think. That's the mental health cash transfer case. And so we're looking at, uh, we want to look at other things as well. Do you have any advice for individuals who just want to contribute to creating a happier world? What would you say to people listening? Uh, I would, uh, I don't know if it's too dated, I would give them the advice from, from, from Bill and Ted's Adventure, which is the excellent to one another. Uh, at the starting place. I mean, you know, if you're thinking, well, what can I do with my life? Then, then uh, I mean, it depends what stage you're at. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that some of your, your listeners might kind of lean uh, more towards your sort of age. So though I would think about 
Can I get into a good university? Can I get involved in, uh, I would encourage people to think about the, uh, their interaction, they're trying to get stuck into effective altruism, thinking what they could, they could do with their careers. If you wanted a kind of a, a lifelong career in uh, affecting well-being, then kind of the most obvious things really relate to, uh, to research and then to and politics and policy. What we're doing is, um, in the first instance, we're trying to think how can uh, private resources be used. So uh, we uh, we are raising the we are shaking the collecting tin for ourselves. If people are interested in donating for us, if you want to if you want to follow our recommendations, then stay tuned. Around Christmas time, we should we should have a sort of a mini complete picture uh, on those. Uh, I mean, you can also engage with our research, see what we've written. Uh, if you're interested, there's there's plenty of stuff out there on uh, on the, the science of human well-being. Great, yeah, and I'll be sure, of course, to you know share your website so people should definitely check it out. And just in closing, is there anything else that you'd like to add or maybe reiterate about the Happier Lives Institute? I mean, maybe I'll just close by by reiterating the the sort of the, the main idea. So one thing that we that we do care about, but we sometimes yeah, we care about is happiness. We might focus on other things like health, wealth, really happiness. I think for most of us is really a core of what we what we value for ourselves and for others. Um, we can you know, we can we can measure that in a scientifically reliable way. We can work out what the priorities are, but we haven't yet done so. And I think that if we want to have an impact on the world, that's um, uh, that's an enormous, exciting, practical, and neglected opportunity. Um, and I would uh, I would recommend it uh, to your listeners. Thank you so much for coming on again. I really appreciate it. I think a lot of people can learn a lot of really interesting stuff that maybe they weren't thinking about before. Great. Well, thank you very much.